Coaches, are you looking for a way to level up and win more? Then you should check out GMS Plus, your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. You can learn from the game's greats, such as John Spraw, Mike Wall, Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, and Courtney Thompson. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will get you there. You can get 20% off an annual subscription by going to goldmedalsquare.com CYBO and entering the coupon code CYBO. That's goldmiddlesquare.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. We're excited to welcome to the show the health and human performance professor, Jamie Taylor. Dr. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Hey, that, that's very nice of you. Thank you for having me on. So I've, I've you know, gone through your bio a little bit, and I know you've gone from teacher originally, and then to coach, and then to coach developer, and I know you still coach, but was that your goal all along to work with coaches and to coach coaches? Oh, um, no, I don't think my goal uh, all along was to, to end up in this situation I am now, I think my, uh, I think I sort of stumbled into really loving coaching from uh, from a different place, and um, thought I was a better coach than I ever was an athlete. And I've just sort of uh, found myself in a path where I've fallen deeper and deeper in love with uh, what I hope one day could be considered a profession. And yep, so I split my time of my week um, around about 30 percent coaching, thirty percent coach developing, and then. Uh, uh, 30% working with coaches, working with coach developers and writing about it as well. So would that be the long-term goal? It sounds like that's a newer profession. And even here, you know, there's, there's people doing it, but it seems like it's, it's showing up more and more where someone is a full-time coach developer. Is that where you'd like to head? Uh, no, I'm quite happy with, um, with where I am now. The balance. There's, there's, yeah, there's, there's, um, I think there's plenty of full-time coach developers and it's more for me, it's it's more about me evolving my craft and uh, evolving what I do, uh, more so than uh, doing something for an allocated period of time. Um, and clearly, it leaves me to be a, a pretty busy man. But um, it's not quite so much work when uh, when your hobby is your job. Yeah, I agree. That's why that's why coaching is so great. You do all the work because you love it. Um, I, I discovered you through one of the journals, one of the articles you wrote. Uh, it was called psychological safety in high performance sport contextually applicable. And uh, actually, first, I want to thank you for writing an article, an academic article that was very readable. I feel like a lot of them that I read are um, a little bit harder to read than uh, than I like them to be. But this one was very accessible. So so congrats for that. Um, but yeah, you, you start the article, you mentioned that high performance sport has this kind of dubious history with taking ideas from, you know, growth mindset or grit uh, from different fields. So a field like education, and then we apply it, uh, you know, to sport. So I guess, why do you see that as problematic? Hey, well, look, first of all, um, thank you for thinking that it's readable because ultimately my intention with all of my work is that it's, I work, I work in an applied field. I don't work or write, um, for the purpose of uh, academia for the sake of it. And I think that's a really important grounding thing for me where 
Um, I want the, my work to really have a make a genuine difference in the world and hopefully improve what might be a profession. You never know. Um, and this is, I suppose, at the heart of some of the issues that I see in that um, I've heard uh, coaches and, and uh, particularly in the field of high performance, people referred to as magpies, where they, they'll run around picking up ideas and go, oh, I quite like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. Um, without really seeing the broader picture and without considering what what, what might the, uh, the upsides and the downsides of using that particular idea, that particular construct. So, um, and I, I, look, growth mindset is a good place to start because it's very much um, in the headlines, really, for um, it's been in the headlines both because it's been a really, uh, it's, it's been highlighted as something that's universally positive uh, in the education field and in the occasional TED talk. And it's now getting some quite significant pushback. Um, and that significant pushback comes from two angles. One is the, is this a valid construct? That is, does this actually, um, does this really make a difference to students? And then the second bit is the extent to which growth mindset interventions work. Now, um, and there's also the idea that I either have a growth mindset or I don't have a growth mindset, which is the significant oversimplification of what's going on there. Now, um, in all of those cases, without digging into the nuances of it, the problem that I'm highlighting is that we frequently see a construct grabbed oversimplified and then used in practice in a way that isn't useful for anybody mm-hmm. and as a result we all get wrapped up with a single idea and we don't see the bigger picture and our profession doesn't evolve um, and that's really I think we've seen certainly in my career we've seen a, a variety of those different things popping up becoming quite fashionable then sort of dying away a bit um, and I think that based on the last perhaps three or four years of, of my practice particularly in high performance sports, uh, psychological safety has become a term that's been used uh, used a lot and particularly used in a number of organizations that, that I've seen. And before we get into psychological safety specifically, um, can you just explain, I guess, why, the, why there's a problem with taking what researchers do and looking at like, um, specifically, let's say, um, growth mindset. Is that not applicable to sport? Is the context too different? Um, I think growth mindset as a construct is very applicable, but you've got to know when you're using it and how you're using it and indeed why you're using it. Because in certain circumstances, um, it might be quite useful to have a fixed mindset, a recognition that this is a significant weakness and I might need to hide it on the court. And therefore, um, there's a there's a real contextual specificity of when might a growth mindset be appropriate. I believe that if I work at this, I can develop it. But then if I want to work at growing um, another six inches, well, um, does that, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. And do I believe that that's going to happen? Um, if I don't believe that's going to happen, does that make me have a fixed mindset? Now, I'm just going to be really clear when I say that. I mean, that's a bit of a, a silly example that I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, Carol Dweck or any of the uh, implicit theory that uh, work that she did re- is representing that, uh, that narrowness. The critique that she's had in the literature has been very much around the extent to which growth mindset can be cultivated. And I think there's still an ongoing debate about that based on um, what you might call very surface level interventions. Is growth mindset applicable in sport? 
it depends on the context and it depends who you're using it with and why. So then I, I, it's an area we've, you know, I've covered a lot. Obviously it's such a huge word in sport. I'm, I'm curious, just, I know we want to move on to psychological safety, but now we're going to go down rabbit holes. But um, so if uh, we do want to apply uh, her, her concepts, the concepts that she discovered in, in her research to sport, um, have you found ways that it is effective to, to use in a more nuanced way? I guess, you know, like you talked about, it's one, one way is how it's a spectrum versus black or white. Um, are there other things that we can, other ways we can use the concept more effectively? So I think if you look at growth mindset um, and in defining it, let's say as an attitude, it's an outcome of a skill set. That's the way that I would see excuse me that psych uh, that um the growth mindset can be useful but it's understanding what underpins it and do i have the skill set as an athlete to recognize here is an area that i really need to focus on here is an area that i need to apply my cognitive resources to and then here's an area where i, I look um, not appropriate at this time or i can't take the steps against this to improve it and indeed it's not important so i'm not going to uh, act against that Mm-hmm. That to me is uh, part of a broader conglomerate of uh, psychological skills, psychobehavioral skills, mental skills, whatever we want to call them, that should be part, uh, well, a critical part of athlete development. The point being that um, there are a far broader range of things there than it is just the, um, let's call it an attitudinal outcome of growth mindset. So if I'm understanding right, it- and maybe you could tell me how you've seen coaches misuse it. Um, you know, and here's an example. Uh, and I think what you're expressing, how you have to have a growth mindset. You have to have it about everything. If not, you know, you're not right in this culture. Like you, you have to use this growth mindset all the time in all spaces. Um, is that the sort of way you've seen it used? And is that kind of what you're saying? People will, will do it that way? That's one way I've seen it used. The other way I've seen it used is she hasn't got a growth mindset, so um, mm. there's no point picking her mm-hmm. without going, okay, well, there's some changeable things going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, are we going to help her develop a um, growth mindset, if we want to call it that, <laughs> yeah. um, based on telling her, well, you need to have a growth mindset and um, you need to be bettering yourself in every area? No, it comes back to that broader range of different psychological skills that uh, we know underpin uh, elite performance across multiple domains yeah that i mean that statement which i think I, i've seen too is a, it seems like a coach with a clear fixed mindset and <laughs> in, in a uh, uh in that situation and look if i may um i've also seen it applied to coaches where um he or she hasn't got a growth mindset because they're not uh, because they're very skeptical about this new idea um and i think where we really want to be is um and look, I think a key characteristic of a really good coach is somebody who's incredibly open to new ideas, mm. thinks them through, but thinks them through with a very, very skeptical edge and winnows, uh, winnows effectiveness or winnows effective truth uh, from a, a, a wide variety of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's a good message. Okay, well, uh, I think I could keep going down this, but let's let's move into the the main uh, topic of the article, which is psychological safety. Do you just start out by introducing the concept? Um, I know it comes from Amy Edmondson. I think she's the original, uh, at least the one who popularized it. Could you could you take us through it? 
Yeah, and look, I think this bit's really important because there are so many definitions in use. And even since this particular paper has been published, a new slant on it has been taken in sport. Now, if I'm going to, um, I don't think it's overly simplifying um, Edmondson's idea that there are two sides to, to psychological safety. One is the perception that I can speak up around here, that I'm not going to get shot down, that people aren't going to think ill of me because uh, I'm willing to challenge people around me or that I'm willing to ask questions. That's the idea of I can speak up. The second bit is about performance consequence, that I feel uh, I don't feel afraid of my mistakes being judged or punished. And that's uh, those two distinctions, the, the, the double endedness of the construct is really, really important because I think very often people get stuck at one end or the other. Um, I also think it's it's more it's morphed in sport. It's been used in um, reference mental health. Um, it's been referenced in lots of other ways that are closer almost to the idea of safety or safetyism. And that's not what psychological safety is. It's very much a performance construct. It's a construct that's applied to a particular setting. And if people perceive themselves to be able to speak up, and they perceive a, a lack of consequence for poor performance, then they may well perform better. Now, I think there's a really robust uh, evidence base to support that in the settings that most of the research has been done, uh, particularly um, uh, from uh, Amy Edmondson's lab. Awesome. Where, where has most of the research been done? Um, majority of it has been done in business settings. It's also been uh, used in medical settings and uh, a, few, a couple of military settings, but uh, uh, most of that has been uh, has more been um, grey literature, so it's not uh, it's not out there in the open. And you explained it a little bit, but can you go into, I guess, how you've seen the sports world and sports teams applying this framework? I've seen it applied in, in a lot of ways. Um, I've heard it applied in some settings as, look, this is a universal essential. Everybody around here needs to perceive a level of psychological safety if they are going to improve. That is, if we're treating the construct as um, Edmondson's definition, that when I am playing sport, I need to feel like I can speak up, I can ask questions. Now, uh, with the exception of few different situations I just don't I, I can't think of many areas uh, where I can see a problem with that and uh, no no that's that's not necessarily an empirical statement um, it's more the latter part of it that I, I just am really dubious about and indeed some of our work and some of our ongoing work would suggest there are really serious issues with the idea that for me as a developing performer or indeed an elite performer that um, it's either facilitative of me if I perceive there's no consequence for poor performance or uh, that if I feel that I'm not going to be judged for uh, performing badly. Now, if I am, let's say, uh, and I've used the example a few times that um, uh, I don't know if, uh, if either of you are into your MMA, um, but we're talking a few days after somebody who I used to train with, uh, a guy called Leon Edwards, won, um, won the welterweight title. Now, um, that he is, uh, he's clearly losing the fight. 
And with one minute left to go, he wins by knockout with a head kick. Now, there is no way that he can perceive that situation as psychologically safe. Mm-hmm. That he, if he doesn't win by knockout in that moment, his life changes and indeed his family's life changes. There are serious consequences through judgment that result from him winning that fight by a head kick. Same, you could say, is if you're, if you're stood at the start line of an Olympic, uh, an Olympic final, what you do in the next however long your event takes will change your life for good or for bad. But, uh, and that's probably, I'm probably being oversimplistic there. It will change your life and you will be judged by people around the world as a result of what happens. Now, you might be thinking, right, that's okay, I get that. Um, but let's go to the talent development end. And we could be as simple as uh, the uh, John, the team that you coach at some mm-hmm. point, you pick a team. Yep. And you pick a team based on a variety of different things. It could be performance. It could be contribution to the group. It could be a variety of different things that you base your selection on. Right. But you're not picking the, the whole state of California in your team. <laughs> and as a result, people are being judged in sport and that is where it gets very different to the average business setting because at the end of a week there's a people are in a team or they're out of a team and you might say well people are in the team they might feel psychologically safe they might feel like they're not being judged and this is where i think it gets really interesting because we've got a baseline of look i'm not i'm really not sure that this can apply all the time in sport the next bit goes well does it actually help people perform better? And we had a paper recently where we looked at a group of rugby players uh, from, uh, from a variety of different countries uh, uh, over my side of the world. Um, mm-hmm. Eight of them uh, made it to senior international level. So they are playing elite sport. The other eight were in the uh, academy systems at the same time as them. They were playing junior international sport at the same time as those who really kicked on. And one of the biggest factors they perceived was this idea that I don't feel safe um, if I'm going to, but if I respond well to a lack of safety, it drives me on. It motivates me. I have got the ability to cope with this lack of safety and it's actually very facilitated. But I can't take it all the time. There are times when I need uh, to feel safer. I need to feel like I'm being judged less mm. because I can't, uh, because I need to be able to almost motivate to make gains and then consolidate. I see. So there, the, the two components I can speak up around here, it sounds like oh, that's the first one. It sounds like that one, maybe more of the time in a sports context has some validity, some value where the performance consequence i'm you know i'm not afraid to make mistakes around here that's a lot more fluid there's lots of times where you're gonna that's just part of high performance is is that uh, accurate in my opinion yes but uh, again i just really emphasize the nuance Mm -hmm. because um let's say you want to make a technical change to somebody and um, i don't think you want to induce serious uh, a lack of performance safety on somebody that is you want to dial up the pressure and say, look, you need to do this or you're not going to get picked. 
I don't mm. think that's going to help them make changes to a well-established right. technique. <laughs> right. right. But if they need to, uh, if they need, to, uh, if they need, if there are fundamental changes they need to make, let's say uh, to their uh, their conditioning or their work ethic, then actually it might be highly facilitated. Or if they walk into a new training group where the standard is a lot higher than what they were used to, they're looking around and going. Wow! If I if I want to get picked around here, I need to do that. I need to do that, mm-hmm. and it's that lack of um, that lack of safety that can actually be very facilitative. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm just really emphasizing that it's not um, beat people with a stick and they'll get better. Right. It's there's a time almost for dialing up or dialing down mm-hmm. um, the the extent of set of safety. There's an idea that we talked about in um, from a medical setting called, uh, called a safe container, where um, we sit down in a uh, we sit in medical setting. We sit down in a room and go right this this spot here. We have to be really clear with each other, and nothing from whatever whatever is said in this context uh, can be held against you in the future, or indeed nothing in this setting performance wise will be judged against you, and. I think the clear transference of that is if you say to one of your players, it does not matter. You are getting picked for the next five games. Does not matter what you do. But I think that's more a function of role clarity Mm -hmm. and uh, a coach athlete following through on that role clarity, which makes things safe in that instance. But for you to do that, somebody else has to sit on the bench and uh, therefore that other person has to be judged. So right. for me, it, it's highly individual. It's very nuanced. But the thing that I think I can say with comp- the thing that I think I can say pretty clearly that in sport, the idea of a psychologically safe environment is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned the word safetyism. How, how is that? How is or what is that? And how is that different than psychological safety? Uh, we're going outside my um, my domain a bit. But um, I think if you look at safety in modern culture, what we're talking about is uh, the the uh, the fear from the, a lack of um, any discomfort or needing to make sure that you are safe at all times, um, mm-hmm. not being presented with things that might challenge you, um, mm-hmm. and so on. And that's not what psychological safety is. But it, is that a mistake that you see when people are attempting to apply it that they're using safetyism? This reminds me of. I don't know if you're familiar with like Jonathan Haidt, um, who talks a lot about like we, uh, especially here in the States, like raising kids and, you know, like treating them like they're fragile and really overprotecting them and kind of setting them up for, um, you know, once they kind of start to face the world, they, you know, they realize the world is, or they're not ready for the challenges of the world. Um, but yeah. That kind of takes off track, but yeah, I guess what, what what mistakes do you see coaches making when they're attempting to apply this? No, I, and look, I don't think it is off track, but I just reinforce. I think Jonathan Haidt's work is uh, is excellent. Um, the difference here is, and this is where I think people uh, have conflated things. That uh, psychological safety is not about uh, not being challenged, whereas safetyism is it's make sure that this person feels comfortable all the time. Now. Um, uh, and I, I, there's not a lot that I can see wrong with Jonathan Haidt's theory, which is that people aren't being prepared for the realities of the world. 
mm-hmm. that safetyism is a culture where people are protected from everything and any possible harm. Um, and I think there's, there's, uh, I think that more broadly, what you've got are these two were these two ideas that are starting that sound similar, mm-hmm. and therefore conceptually in the real world now, not necessarily in the literature, but in the in the real world, have been conflated. This idea that for me as an athlete, I perform best when I'm feeling comfortable, and therefore it's uh, it's a coaching group's job to make me feel comfortable because that uh, that helps me perform. And we might get into nuances then that go, well, if it's a World Cup final today, then I might want to feel comfortable. If it's an Olympic final today, yeah, you might want to feel like you, you've got this, you're comfortable. But that might not be what happens when you when in your developmental stage, when it perhaps should be uncomfortable, whether that's physically, mentally, technically, tactically. Nice. And uh, mental health has been a big topic uh, in all levels of sport. Is there any evidence that psychological safety would make an impact on mental health? So uh, since since uh, this paper has been released, there's, uh, there is a study that's been done in Australia that looked at um, uh, psychological safety and mental health. Now, where I think that's, uh, without necessarily going into the nuances of it, I, I think that what that showed was if I'm more willing to speak up about my mental health, that's likely to support my mental health. But I think it's not quite what the construct of psychological safety is full stop. Outside of that, no, there isn't a lot of evidence that shows psychological safety or a perception of psychological safety enhances mental health. Um, and you might even start questioning, well, is it chicken or egg as well? Because if, if I'm in, if I'm in uh, good mental health or if I've got a mental health illness, that might impact on my perceptions of psychological safety. Um, but again, I'd return to the idea that in sports, I'm not sure how possible it is to perceive psychological safety as a whole construct anyway. I, w- I wanted to move, move back to the article and how you, uh, there's a, a quote from it that I, re- I pulled out I really like. Um, the quote is, there's found evidence that high levels of psychological safety impact motivation and effort levels. There's even been the suggestion that team that teams high in psychological safety safety were more likely to engage in unethical behavior. Uh, that really jumped out at me, and I was curious why that would be the case. Okay, so single study, um, not from the sporting realm, um, that tied perceptions of higher psychological safety to a uh, some more unethical behavior. Now, um, I, I'm not completely sold on the, the the hypothesis presented in that, and I don't think it's necessarily very well followed up. But what I think it does highlight um, is that it's not a universal positive, and that there may well be side effects, uh, unwanted side effects of perce- uh, high perceptions of psychological safety. And indeed, I think that what I mean, one of the major studies that I cited in that paper looked at the impact on teacher performance, where teachers perceived high levels of psychological safety, their performance dropped when compared to perceptions of high accountability. That is um, now we're getting really into the nuances now. And this is where I think conceptual clarity becomes quite difficult because 
some people would argue, well, um, if I don't, if I feel free, uh, that uh, high psychological safety doesn't mean I lack accountability. I would suggest that um, if I perceive that I'm being judged for my, my performance, then that's probably going to make me feel more accountable. Makes sense. And then in a different article, you brought up the idea of coaches who use driven benevolence. Uh, can you explain what that term means? Uh, so that idea was from a paper by Sergio Lara. But, uh, but, uh, I'm, apologies if he's, if he's listening because I'm really struggling with pronouncing his surname. Sergio Lara Basial, um, where he looked at characteristics of uh, what he called serial winning coaches. One of those was driven benevolence. That is um, the idea that they're going to they um, they clearly care about the people that are in front of them, but they're going to drive really hard and they're going to hold them accountable to very high standards. Yeah, I like that. And that, so it seems like with psychological safety, um, there is a lot of nuance and you can't just uh, blanketly, you know, use it in, in the sporting world. Um, are there components of it that would be worth implementing in high performance environment? You mentioned kind of like that first end with communication. Yeah, uh, so I think what can what should characterize performance environments is robust discussion. And I've seen that referred to in lots of ways. So um, I think, and um, uh, I haven't got the paper in front of me, I think we refer to zone of uncomfortable debate in there, which is we should be having uncomfortable discussions about our performance. That in my coaching group, and this happened to me last night where I think I didn't do something very well, well enough. And uh, I got that feedback from the person I'm coaching with. I think you could probably have, uh, have approached that element of your session better. That didn't feel good, but I I know that it, it's um, I'm in a in a place where um, he can say that, and that if I disagreed with him, I'd say so. Um, I think that, and I, I think I, I think that's the same from a player to coach as well. I think it's the same from an athlete to coach that there should be the ability to speak honestly and express what you think to each other. Um, I think there are, are, of course, edge cases where it's not the right time to do it on the Olympic final morning, uh, where, you know, the, there's, there's a time and a place. But I think as a general catch-all, I think there's, there's a really strong idea in that. I personally think that that idea is better represented by uh, zone of uncomfortable debate, by um, implicit voice theory, which I accidentally referenced earlier on in the conversation, which is a Amy Evanson's. But that is a, an individual level construct, not a, a shared perception in an environment. And then of course, we can start then getting into the nuances of that person there might be more willing to say what they think based on a conglomerate of personality characteristics. But let's not go there for the time being. If we say that, that front end of it, I think, is a really useful idea. I also think that there is a time and a place for athletes to not perceive performance consequences, for example, if we're looking to make a technical change. Or if, for example, we know that somebody's having a not particularly good time in the rest of their life. And at that point, we need to just go offer them some role clarity, offer them some, uh, some, cer some certainty that goes, don't worry. It does not matter how poor you are, but at the same time, that cannot be an athletic career because that's not the real world. Right. And 
I think my, my issue at the moment is that we're not willing to get into the nuances of all of this because uh, there is there are some really clear and difficult uh, grubby decisions that have to go on in the middle of this. And that's what coaching is. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think all the stuff you're saying is, um, it's really like, shat- I mean, earth, earth shattering, that's probably a little extreme, but I mean, so many, anybody in, co- in sport would say, yeah, of course, growth mindset, you use that all the time, psychological safety, deliberate practice, like, we just wholeheartedly take on these terms and, and most of the time don't question them. I mean, I haven't heard anybody, but you question something like psychological safety. Like that's just a, a truth. It's felt like in the last, whatever, five to 10 years. Um, have you, ha, have you always, I mean, what you're saying makes so much sense to be nuanced. And there are, there is some elements of this that could be applicable and, and helpful and probably some that in certain moments is not. Um, so what you're saying is, is, is so cool, but I'm, I'm curious if you always approach things I mean, it just seems like you have a skeptical eye, like you approach things with skepticism. Is that um, kind of just built into the way you are? Um, uh, my wife would probably say so. Um, <laughs> I, look, I I try my best. I certainly don't. Uh, I certainly don't always manage it. That I try to live the idea that I said at the start about um, being really open to new ideas, but then being uh, ruthlessly skeptical through ideally through yeah, empirical testing of something mm-hmm. um, and through logical reasoning to try and get to my views on something um, I'm certainly certainly don't get that right all the time but that's the ideal that I, I try try my best to live to um, and I suppose with offer, having a, uh, a practitioner's eye and I wouldn't refer to myself as an academic but uh, somebody who uh, is trying to drive a high quality applied practice. I think that may well give me a slightly different perspective on things. And I do see an academic and practice divide a lot of the time. Um, and I, I do try to bridge that. I'm certainly, um, look, I try my best. I certainly don't get it always right. I don't always get it right.